Well, good morning. We're going to continue our journey through the, our verse-by-verse journey through the Epistle of Romans, and we're looking at a very important section of the first chapter. Uh, we're looking at a part that has to do with verses 18 through 32 of the first chapter, but I'm, I suggest to you that this is not the complete thought that the apostle had. We've got to remember that the, 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 the divisions of chapters and, and the numbering of verses did not, were not in the original autographs. And, and they were added many, many, many centuries later to help us to study the Bible. And sometimes they're very helpful. I don't believe there was any sinister motive behind it at all. They were trying to be helpful. And sometimes they are. Many times they are. Probably most of the time they are very helpful. But there are times when it gets in the way and we have to read it the way it's written, not the way the numbering systems go. And this is one of those cases. And so the the complete thought of the apostle goes from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 26 of chapter 3. That is one thought. And, and the issue that was at hand that most people don't even care about and most people don't know is a very important issue that has to do with God's righteousness in forgiving sin. The Old Testament tells us that whoever forgives the guilty is, whoever clears the guilty is a partaker of his evil deeds. And so, how does God forgive the guilty and still remain righteous and not become an unjust judge? In other words, uh, we're all guilty. We're all guilty of sin. We all deserve damnation. And instead of damnation, God has given us grace. Now, you, you, you can't just forget about our sin. Sin has got to be paid for. Sin's got to be dealt with. You can't sweep sin under the rug. It's there. We did it. We're guilty. It's a stain upon us. So God can't just say, oh, well, boys will be boys, and we'll just forget about all that. That's not the way it works. Sin has to be paid for. And the, and the way that sin is paid for in the Bible is that somebody's got to die. Blood's got to be shed. That's the way sin is remitted. That's the way sin is paid for. And so there's two choices. Either you and I have to die for our own sins eternally in hell, or somebody's got to take our place. And, and so how does God forgive the guilty and show us mercy and remain righteous? And so if you're, if you're trying to understand how this works, just, just put yourself in a courtroom and some monster has kidnapped your child and killed and murdered your child brutally and cut them up in pieces and they find them on the side of the road. They catch the guy, the guy's guilty. There's no doubt about his guilt. You go to court when the trial starts. Now you're in the courtroom to find what? justice. You want justice, right? And in the case of a guilty, brutal, vicious, violent murderer, what is justice? His death, right? Okay, so you're in the, you're in the courtroom to see justice served. And so you're sitting there and the judge, the, the jury comes back and finds him guilty. And then the judge says, I have the authority to override the jury and I can proclaim this man 
not guilty and I can show him mercy. Or I can accept the fact that he's guilty, accept the juror's verdict that he's guilty and then show him mercy. And so he says, by virtue of my authority as a judge, I set you free. Now, you're outraged, right? Because what did not happen in that courtroom that day? Justice was not served. What was served? Mercy. Well, as Christians, aren't we all about mercy? Except when it, it comes our way, and then we want justice, right? Okay, now, that's the problem. That, that I'm creating the problem for you so I can solve it. So we look at that judge that, 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 that pardoned the guilty, and we say, you're not a just judge. You're an unjust judge. You're not righteous. And we're correct. The judge is not righteous. What is the judge? Merciful. He's unrighteous, but he's merciful. So mercy then becomes a weakness. Mercy then becomes something terrible, something bad because it does not allow for justice to be carried out. So it's either just either mercy or it's justice, but it can't be both. This is called the greatest theological conundrum. In Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, all these isms out there, they cannot solve this issue. How does God remain perfectly righteous where he pardons the guilty and shows mercy to those who are sinful? How can God do that and remain a just or a righteous judge? And the answer is we have Jesus who came and took the punishment of God for our sins on himself. So our sins were, were punished. We just didn't have to pay the price. That's what this issue is all about. And before Paul wrote this, the little scenario that I just gave you is the summary of what verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and then 1 through 26 of chapter 3 is trying to teach us. So it begins with how bad we are. It begins with our problem, our sin problem. And then it goes into an exchange. And that's where we are right now. We're in verses 22 to 24. It's on page 29 of your handout. And it's called the first exchange. There's an ex a, a swap made. There's an exchange made that precipitates a response from God. So let's read verses, uh, let's pray first. Father, we know that the Bible is true. We know that it is your word. It came from you and your heart and your mind and you sent it out and you breathed upon these men as they wrote and somehow you superintended their, they use their own language, they use their own logic, they use their own wisdom, and yet somehow you superintended what they wrote so that it is infallible and inerrant. And Lord, we, would, we believe that. And so we're trying to understand the Word of God, and we're trying to explore it so that we can understand it. And I pray you help us today as we go a little bit deeper into this issue of, of, of God being just and merciful at the same time to the same person who is guilty. And I pray, God, you give us insight into your word. And I pray, Father, that you, you guard my tongue, that I will not speak or teach that which is wrong. And I pray you bless the eyes and the ears and the minds and the heart of these that are gathered here today, those that are watching by means of the Internet and those who will be watching at some later point, that they may see and they may hear and they may believe, that you will overcome all unbelief 
and all disbelief and that you will triumph over the unbeliever with your gospel that the unbeliever can be saved in Jesus Christ's most precious name. Amen. Okay, we're at Romans 1, uh, 20 through 24 on page 29. Sister Colleen, would you please read that? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. All right. Amen. Now, um, as you read 20 through 24, we see uh, that God's invisible, two of God's invisible attributes in, pay, in, in verse 20, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. So the observation of nature, the observation of the created universe will reveal to us God's eternal power and divine nature. And so they are without excuse. Now, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation. So once they saw the truth, once they had the truth, but they didn't love the truth, they didn't embrace the truth, they didn't want the truth, they started speculating about things. And this is where you get all of these off-the-wall, weird unworkable, unprovable concepts that men go out of their way to try to believe in, like Darwinian evolution, like the Big Bang, like uh, all these kinds of things that people come up with. And because and they go out of their way to disbelieve God, they go out of their way so they don't believe the Bible when the Bible tells us clearly what God has done. But they kept on speculating they don't stop. They don't just sit in a chair and remain neutral toward God. They are now an enemy of God. God is their enemy. They are God's enemy. And they are now actively working to try to undermine God's will in the earth. So you got to understand lost people, even though they are our mission field, we have to understand that they are also the source of the problems. And so we have to have mercy on them and pity on them and we pray for them and we work with them to, to persuade them to become Christians. But that's where the, wor the fallen world system comes from. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. It didn't pop up out of the water. It didn't come up out of the mountains. It comes from the heart of men who do not love God, who are working overtime to try to fight against God. And then verse 22 gives a condemnation. They professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, there are a couple of different kind of fools in the world. There is a silly person who is acting silly and not serious, and they call that guy a fool. So a jester or a comic or a comedian or, or somebody just acting silly, that's a fool. But at the same token, there's also a fool in, in God's perspective 
that denies God's existence when, it, when, it's, when he's standing right in front of them. And, and so this kind of fool is a condemnation. He is, he is terrible in his ability to understand things, and he's understanding things wrongly, which leads him to disbelieve truth and disbelieve God. So they became fools, and here's what these fools did in verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And back in the first century, that image was in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Now, usually we don't have a physical idol or a totem pole sitting in our living room that we and we got cushions underneath it so we can get on our knees in front of this idol and worship it. We usually don't have that in the 21st century. What we do have, though, is the idol of money or the idol of power or the idol of sex or the idol of whatever, possessions, the idol of, of, of people that we love and admire. Uh, when I was growing up and I was all into the, the sport of football, these football players were my idols, and I had pictures of them all over my walls, and I wanted to be like them. So they were my idols. And I remember the day that I found out that Johnny Unitas used bad words and smoked cigarettes, and it liked to kill me. It was about the time I found out that the Easter Bunny wasn't true. I just cried and cried and cried and cried that, that morning, my mother told me. And then I found out that Santa Claus wasn't true. Santa Claus was the hardest one to overcome because I had been drilled in, that had been drilled into me from a little child. And so when I got up on the roof with my brother and our chimney was, was, was sealed over with cement, it had two little pipes on it. And I said, well, how does Santa Claus get down these little pipes? And my brother said, well, I think he has the power to divide himself and come down like that. I said, well, how does he bring presents down there? I couldn't understand it. And he was trying to figure it out too because Christmas Eve night when we went to bed, about 10 o'clock at night, he saw somebody walking by his bedroom door, a shadow walking by his bedroom door going into the living room. And he knew that was Santa Claus. And actually, it was my father walking into the living room to get the presents that they had hid and, and to put them under the tree. And, and so... These myths that we grew up with, and and I'm gonna. I remember watching the movie Mary Poppins when it first came out, and it was cool. And I went to my friend next door, and I said, "I'm gonna be, I can fly." And he said, "You can." I said, "Yeah." I just saw people who flew in the in the movie, and I got an umbrella, and I got up on the garage, and I'm gonna jump off the garage, and this umbrella is gonna carry me all through the backyard on the wind. Only it didn't. And I jumped off, and the umbrella went like that, and I fell down, and that broke my leg. And I, I remember being so shocked that it didn't work, just so amazingly disturbed that this thing I just saw with my own eyes was not true. Had to be real. I saw it. So people said, well, I know what I see. No, you don't know what you see. There's a whole bunch of people I can get to stand right in front of you and Deceive your eyes. Their hands move so fast. So, so we have idols, though, don't we? And we, and we, we build idols. And, and here's the problem with our idols. Number one is sacrilege to God. And God said, have no other gods before me. So it's a sin because you're, you're saying that's the God 
that, that, that heals me and delivers me and provides for me, which is blasphemy because the God that heals us and delivers us and provides for us is the God of, of heaven, not this object that I just made. And I, I'm going to get the, the particular prophet. It was an Old Testament prophet, probably Isaiah, Jeremiah, and they mock the people of Israel. They're mocking them. God is mocking them. And he says, you go out in the woods and you cut a tree down and you cut it in half. And one half you make firewood with it. and The other half you carve a totem pole. And then you get up and you worship it. You just made this with your own hands. It can't see. It can't hear. It can't answer you. But, but, but i tell you what you need to do. Next time you get in trouble, call on him to help you. Don't call on me. And, and, and that's the silliness of having idols because what happens is sooner or later, whoever it is, your wife, your husband, your children, your boss, the president, some movie star, some singer, some sports star, whoever is your idol, sooner or later they're going to disappoint you. You're going to see their flaws because every human on earth is a sinner. Nobody's perfect. And you're sooner or later, you're going to see a weakness or a flaw in the people that you admire the most. And you're going to be let down because you've built them up higher than they need to be. That's what's going on. They're not any different than they were before you got disappointed. They've always been like this. You thought they were better than that. And so in your eyes now, they're not what they used to be. And now you despise them. And that's what happens to idols. Brother Jody? I was just going to say, uh, if you keep following after these people, you end up in the ditch. That's why you got to follow Jesus. That's right. Even though he's speaking and teaching about Jesus. That's right. Jesus is the only perfect human that ever lived. He had no flaws. He had no uh, secret issues going on in his life. He never, he never, ever, he always loved people perfectly. He always loved God perfectly. And that perfect love was manifested in his perfect obedience to God and his perfect doing for the people in dying for them. So these people who know about God, they're not saved, but they know about God. They're raised with God being all around them in their, in their school, in their studies, in their language, in their friends, in their relatives and everything. They hear about God all the time. But they don't love God. They don't want God. They don't even want God to, to be in their knowledge any longer. And so they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. They make a swap. The glory of God is Jesus. And the glory of Jesus is the grace of God and salvation through Jesus. And so, so they, don't, they want to swap that glory for, for an image that's in the form of something else beside God. Now, God sees that, and God responds to that. In verse 24, therefore, therefore, it starts out, therefore, because that's true, because everything I just told you in verses 20 through 23 is true. Now, here's the, here's the solution. Here's the sum of the matter. God gave them over. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Okay, so there is this first abandonment by God. There's this first exchange, and then there is an abandonment as a result of the exchange. People didn't like God. They didn't want God, even though they knew about God. So they made an idol, and they started worshiping that idol. 
and therefore God gave them over. God gave them over. Now this is a very frightening type of judgment. There are different kinds of judgments of God. There is cause and effect judgment. You do this, this is going to happen to you. You uh, 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 engage in, in uh, intimacy with, with many, many, many people, you're going to get sick. You're going to get sick. That's a cause and effect judgment. Um, you gamble all your money away, you can't pay your light bill. Cause and effect. Uh, then there is instant, instantaneous judgment. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and God killed them right in the middle of a church service and the people of the church had to go bring their body out and bury them right in the middle of the church service. Um, then there is uh, cataclysmic judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah, like uh, God opening the earth and killing Korah and the sons of Korah. Uh, there's different kinds of cataclysmic judgment uh, uh, a volcano blows up and destroys 300,000 people in 10 minutes with a uh, 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 cloud of, 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 of hot gas and, and soil running down at you at 600 miles an hour and it buries you and they still have the forms of the people as they were sitting down eating supper when this volcano blew up in this city over in Italy. And 2,000 years later, almost 2,000 years later, they've got this. They, you can see their bodies. I mean, they were instantly preserved because the ash covered their bodies, and their flesh and their bones are all deteriorated. But the, but the, the dirt, the clay around them is now solidified and made an, uh, like an image of them, and you can see it. And we see, uh, I've seen actually seen the back of of a person who was in the Hiroshima nuclear explosion this back of this uh, Japanese lady that was horribly disfigured because of the blast but you can go to Hiroshima or Nagasaki today and there's a step going into this building and there is a shadow on that step that is seared into the concrete because the the, the atomic blast was so bright that it seared that shadow of that person the person was eviscerated but the shadow there's a there's a watch that stopped right at the moment that the the the, the bomb exploded. Um, that's cataclysmic judgment. You say, well, that was man doing that. Okay. There's two kinds of cataclysmic judgment. There's the kind that God brings by Himself, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and then there's a kind of cataclysmic judgment like 70 A.D. when the Roman army came down from the north and totally destroyed the entire Jewish way of life, including the Sanhedrin court. The, the Levitical priesthood, um, uh, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem, and God was proving that he was ending the old covenant and he was judging unbelieving Israel. Um, so it's harder for us to understand cataclysmic judgment when God uses other people who may be more sinful than the people that he's judging. But that's God. God can use whoever he wants. He can use a tidal wave or he can use an army. It's, it's irrelevant. But in some way, that is cataclysmic judgment. And then there is eternal judgment, which is hell. That you don't want to get involved in at all. But then there is this kind of judgment. This is the judgment of abandonment. And this is a type of judgment where God no longer deals with people. He says, go do what you want to do. Knock yourself out. I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to convict you of sin. 
I'm not going to deal with you any longer. And so they go out and they sin with abandon and they're not killed. They're not judged. Nothing happens. They get, they make money. They do well and they get emboldened in their sin and they sin more and more and more and more and more and more till it's now, uh, that's what we see going on in this country right now is the judgment of abandonment where God has turned over entire sections of the country to their own lusts and they do whatever is right in their own eyes. We are going to see a total collapse of law and order in this country. That's coming. You're already beginning to see gangs of people just go into a store and steal everything in the store. Nobody's punished. Nobody, nothing happens. And, and that's going to continue to happen. That's only emboldening these people. They used to, they used to smoke dope in the corner around the, around the back of the house, in the woods, uh, at night when nobody could find them or see them. Now they do it in broad daylight on the street corner in front of the police. And, and that's the emboldenment of things. And that's what, that's why they're emboldened. They're emboldened because God's not convicting them. Now he's going to judge them when they die and they will go to hell, but they won't repent because they can't repent because God's not letting them repent. This is the judgment of abandonment. And so you have to, you have to really be, because the only reason any of us get convicted is because God allows us to be convicted. He, he, this is the, this is the imposition of God upon the people that he's chosen for salvation. He does not impose himself on everybody. He only imposes himself on the ones he wants to save. And then he, he, he violates our will. He changes all of our plans. He interrupts our activities. He changes our destiny and doesn't ask permission to do any of that. And the case in point is Abraham. God came to Abraham and said, go, go to another country. He didn't ask him if he wanted to go. He didn't say, try to cooperate with me. He said, get up and go. And then he said, you're going to have a son in your old age with your wife who is also old and past the time of bearing children. And you're going to name him Isaac, guaranteed him a birth, guaranteed him a son, guaranteed him what he's going to name, name the boy. He didn't ask him if he wanted a son. He didn't cooperate. Abraham wasn't cooperating. He was obeying. And God pushed his weight around. I mean, I know there's more theologically astute language to use for this, but God gave him a command. And then he said, you will do this and you will do that and I will do this and I will do that. No choice, no, no acceptance, you will do this. And, and what do you call that? I mean... If you don't say, well, God will never violate the free will of man, tell that to Abraham. So I'm going to change your name. He, why did, maybe he didn't want his name changed. Maybe he wanted to be named Bob. I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying, what, what gives God the right to come down and, and just take over this man's life? He's God. Now, he, like I said, he doesn't do it with everybody. He doesn't do it with the people he's abandoned. He leaves them to themselves. He let Jonah get on the wrong boat, still got him. That's right, and still got him. So he didn't make him go to Tarshish, he, Nineveh. He made him willing to go. Amen. Ankle deep in, in salt water in the, in the belly of a fish with seaweed wrapped around his head, he felt led to repent, and he felt led to go to Nineveh. All right. Amen. And that's the way God does with you and I. That's the reason we're in church this morning. That's the reason we love God. That's the reason we're saved. That's the only reason we experience the miracle of the new birth. 
And, and you, can, you can talk about different experiences that you've had, but I mean, it all comes down to the same thing. I, went, I, I was trying my hardest to sin that night. I wasn't trying to go get saved. I wasn't trying to be born again. I wasn't trying to be godly. I, wasn't try, I was trying to be ungodly, trying as hard as I could to be ungodly, and God would have none of it. And he said, no, you're not. And he grabbed my heart, and he changed my life, <clears throat> right in the area that I was going to sin the most with at, at the football stadium on a Friday night, June the 25th, 1971. And here I am tonight, today, in this pulpit, in this church, 52 years later, preaching God's word. Something got a hold of me. And, and there's all kind of words to explain it. There's all kind of words to describe it. And you're free to use anything you want. As long as you say, this is God's effectual calling. There's a calling to all mankind to repent and believe. Well, you and I are commanded to go to every creature in the world and command them to repent and believe. God is told that this is the day of salvation. You must repent and you must believe. We are to tell everybody that, even though we know everybody's not going to listen. And even among those who listen, some of them are not even saved. And because they only listen to get, get us off their back or they listen so that people will think well of them or a number of other reasons. But then out of all that, God will get his people. Now, he didn't have to choose that method. He could have sent angels. He could have sent birds. He could have sent trees. He could have sent flowers. He sends us who are also sinners. And so it's not about I'm right and you're wrong. That's not the issue, even though that's how people take this. God's right, and both of us are wrong. And God has blessed me with, with salvation. I want you to have that same blessing. So the, 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 if you stop and think about it, telling somebody they're lost when they are lost and, and, and then pleading with them to be saved when they're not saved is the highest expression of love. I don't want a dog to go to hell. I believe in hell. I don't want my worst enemy to go there, but people are going to go to hell. And I don't want anybody I know to go to hell, so I plead with everybody. And it doesn't matter whether they look at me as their enemy. I don't have any enemies on earth. Satan is my enemy. Other human beings are not my enemy. They're my mission field. Now, they may see me as their enemy, but I don't see them as my enemy. God took that out of my heart a long time ago. So you can hurt me, you can lie about me, you can, you can spread rumors about me, knock yourself out. you got to get in line, though, because there's other people way ahead of you. But, but I'm going to love you, and I'm going to preach the gospel to you, and I'm going to try my best to help you get saved. That's because I know that's what your problem is. So there's really only one thing wrong with people. It's not a lack of money. It's not a lack of education. It's not a lack of finances. It's It's sin. That's the only thing wrong with people is sin. And the solution for sin is only one solution. You can't take a pill and get rid of sin. You can't educate your way out of sin. You can't use technology to get out of sin. You can't medicate your way out of sin. Government can't get you out of sin. You've got to repent your way out of sin. And so God brings conviction into the heart by his Holy Spirit, and that conviction brings forth repentance, and that repentance brings forth salvation, and I mean belief, and that belief brings forth salvation. So that's what we want to be about. Now, in order to, um, 
understand this dynamic in verses 20 through 24. We've been looking at the uniqueness of man because man was made in the image and in the likeness of God. So, Brother Don, would you read at the bottom of page 29, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over cattle, and over and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over everything, every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It, ha- <clears throat> it shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. And I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So, right off the bat, the, 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 the way that God uh, counts days, days begin at sundown, and they go all the way to the sundown of the next day. So, we are now in the latter half of Saturday this morning. Saturday began at sundown Saturday and ends at sundown Sunday. Sunday begins at sundown Sunday and goes to sundown Monday. Now, so if you, if you, if, if you, uh, hang on, I didn't say that right. Sunday begins at sundown Saturday and ends at sundown Sunday. All right. So if you want to, be biblical. If you're going to have a night service, you should have it on Saturday night and then have a Sunday morning service because Saturday night is the first part of the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. The Lord's Day starts at sundown Saturday and goes to sundown Sunday. So if you have a, 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 a service on after sundown on Sunday, you're really not in the Lord's Day. You're in Monday. Now, like I said, me growing up with television and me having TV guide in our home, the first day of the week was Saturday. So they always started with Saturday and went forward. So I thought the first day of the week was Saturday. Well, the first day of the week isn't Saturday. It's, it's the first day of the week, which is Sunday, which is the Lord's Day. And it's when John was in the Spirit. And that's when the church gathers together is on the Lord's Day. The Jews thought that the Sabbath, the Sabbath was eternal, and so they disagree, and people now, ever since then, have been battling over this issue, and the truth is, it really doesn't matter if you want to go to church on sundown Saturday, knock yourself out, but just as long as you come sundown, sun up Sunday, because we're celebrating the resurrection. So every Lord's Day is a, is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why Man couldn't have changed the Sabbath, but God could. And so God could have caused uh, Jesus to rise from the dead on the Sabbath, but he didn't. He caused God, to, Jesus to rise from the dead on the Lord's Day. And that's why we gather together. But if you want to go to church on Tuesday, it's great. 
serve God all seven days. Don't just serve God on Sunday. So that's one thing you get out of that. But then also look at this in verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. What does it mean to subdue the earth? Manage it. Yep. What else? Subdue it. Control it. Conquer it. Train people how to think. Train, train people how to think. So we are to conquer, subdue it. There's a force against us, and we should overcome that force like a bear or like a tree or like a river, and we overcome that by building a bridge over that river. We subdue it. We make it serve us rather than us serve it. So you build cities by rivers so you can have imports and exports down the river and up the river. You, you uh, build cities by the coast so you can go to other nations. If you build cities in the center of the, of the country, you've got to have a train track that goes over hills and mountains to get there. Now we have automobiles, so we've got to build roads. Now we have jets. Now we've got to do this. We have the Internet. We've got to put up uh, Internet towers all over the place. So we subdue the earth. We rule, look what it said, and rule over it, right? And you rule over what? You rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man was destined to rule over the animals of the earth and over the insects and over whatever. So when, when you hear people say that man is the problem, man is not the problem. Man is the solution. And so we don't need less activity in nature. We need more. Because when you go to places where man has not tamed or subdued or ruled over the forests, you have trees growing so close together that they kill each other. The trees do. Nothing can survive. Animals starve to death. So when man goes in there and thins out the forests, calls out the excess trees, makes paper and cloth out of, the, out of the trees, we are subduing and ruling over the, the earth and subduing it. That's what we're doing. And that is our destiny. So we, man is not a problem as far as the world is concerned. Man is the solution. We had an oil rig disaster a few years ago, and everybody was talking about the fragile ecology, and everything was going to die. We were all going to die with the... With the with the oil coming in the Gulf and the fish are going to die and fishermen are going to go out of business and, and it was just all doom, 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 doom. What happened? There's more fish in the Gulf now than there's ever been because they're attracted to the oil. By the way, oil leaks out of the bottom of the ocean anyway, all the time. And so that is just those people who believe in mother earth. And so it took man to go in the Louisiana marshes and clean out the oil and clean off the birds that had the oil slicks all over them. So all I'm trying to say to you is that I have, I have met several people who are sure enough, I'm talking about real sure enough Greenpeace ecologists, and they, that's their religion. That's their God. Mother Earth is their God. 
I've never met a Christian in any of those organizations. I'm not saying there aren't. I've never met one. And I've never met a Christian uh, vegetarian that's a total vegetarian because the Bible says we're supposed to eat meat. The Bible says that. So now how much meat is a different story. That's probably the problem. But all I'm trying to say to you is there's a lot of junk going on in our culture today and children are being taught that we need to have Earth Day and we need to do this and do that and we all need to drive electric cars and we all need to do this and stop with this and stop with that. And all I'm trying, these, this is all being driven by people that don't believe in God and they don't believe the Bible and they don't believe, they sure don't believe that we're supposed to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But then look what God said. He says, uh, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. All right, every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And then God looked at what he'd done and he was very pleased. It's very good. It's not just good, it's very good. All right, now, so we see that man then was created and has a destiny to rule over God's creation. So man is the boss who is under God. He's the, he's the foreman that's under the main owner. And we are to run things according to the owner's written instructions. And we are to do it because the owner's coming back and when he comes back, he's going to judge us as to how we ruled over the earth. So yeah, it's wrong to throw paper wrappers out the window when you're going down the highway. That's not, that's not helping things. That's hurting things. That's being irresponsible. It's being lazy. So there's things we need to do. But, but don't buy into the logic that says that if it wasn't for man, everything would be peachy keen. That's just not true. Um... Anyway, let me just say this. Does anybody know what God said about snow in the book of Job? All right. Now, snow's pretty, isn't it? White and beautiful. My little granddaughter, was. we were praying the other day that it might snow this winter. She wants to see snow. She says, I'm going to build a snowman. And she's just all excited about it. it might snow. Okay, great. Snow is terrible if you have to go to work in it every day. People die in this country every year in the winter. They freeze to death. Every winter. I'm talking about the people who live up north who are supposedly used to it. All right. Now, the Bible says in the book of Job that snow was God's, was God's uh, judgment against the earth. And he called it, have you entered into my treasures of the snow which I used to judge? And so he, he, he can destroy an economy with snow. And he has. People can't go to work. They can't make pay bills. They can't do, their lights go out. They their their cars stall out. It happens all the time, even with all of our techno technology and all of our government interference. And and but when you go to these mountains that are covered with snow, they're so high that the snow never melts because it's a it's it's always cold up there. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I just read this the other day, Mount Everest, people climb Mount Everest, it's 31,000 feet high or something. I know it's, maybe it's 33, but the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean is, is deeper than the Mount Everest is high. 
So the Mariana Trench is like 36,000 feet and the Mount Everest is like 33,000 feet or something. Anyway, people climb it and they have to have oxygen tanks and masks to climb it. And you get up at the top and there's, what's there? Nothing. Bacteria can't live up there. And there's like 300 bodies on the, you pass by on the way up there because they can't even get to them and take them down. And, and it's awful because so where man does not reside, where man does not live, where man does not dwell, where man does not uh, do what the Bible says, subdue the earth and rule over it, it's chaos. It's dangerous, it's violent, it's brutal, it's unproductive. We're the ones that make the earth productive. So God created the world in such a way that the only way the earth is productive is if we manage it. And so we're learning, and we're, we're in a process right now. We're learning how to create energy in this company without poisoning the air. And it's a big, there's a lot of taffy pulls going on about how we're supposed to do that. But the reality is none of us want dirty air, right? And none of us want dirty water. Okay, so you start there. So how are we going to keep developing energy and not pollute the environment? There's the struggle. And we're, we're coming up with stuff all the time. There's a, a whole section of the news that I get all the time that's about what Europe is doing with hydrogen. And hydrogen is, you, you can get a teaspoon of water and power a car for 300 years. There's that many hydrogen atoms in it. Uh, uh, nuclear power is becoming safer and safer and safer and safer as time goes on. So, so as man exerts his influence over the earth, it becomes more productive. I know when I was growing up, the big scare was the population explosion. And by the year 2000, we were all going to live in high-rise apartments because there wasn't going to be any land available. And, and everything would be a big city, one conglomerate big city. All the cities would eventually merge together across the United States and it all be, there wouldn't be any woods, there wouldn't be any land, there wouldn't be any rivers. There would be no grass. And there's more trees in the United States now than there was when Columbus set, got on those islands down there. And so you got man out there every day planting trees and harvesting trees. Every day man is doing things. There are 13 people in the city of New York that their job all day long is to find water because they're running out of water. So we're learning how to make water out of seawater. We're learning how to do this and do that cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And so we have access to things that our forefathers didn't have access to, but the, the premise of the basic things remained the same. God created us not just to lay around and, and, and be fed, but God created us to be busy and to be fruitful and to be faithful. And so being busy has to do with subduing the earth and ruling over it. And we do it according to the written instructions of God. And, and so there is, I'm, I'm trying to illustrate to you that man is not like a cow or a horse or a rat or a bird. That we are unique in the universe. And in the bottom of page 30, I told you there's at least five ways that man is unique. There's the uniqueness of how man was created. There's the triune Godhead was present in man's creation. There's the uniqueness of man's being and then the God commanded man to subdue and dominate the earth. And number five, God holds man accountable. And we've been going over that you know, over the last through 
uh, weeks. And I want to look at the middle of page 34 of your handout, number three, the uniqueness of man's being. I spend a lot of time as I'm preaching and teaching talking about who we are as opposed to what we do. If you've been in this church or listened to my broadcast of any length at all, you realize that I don't give a lot of practical tips on better living. That's not what I'm about. I give you theology. I give you the Bible, and then you and the Holy Spirit need to get together to figure out how to apply this in your situation in your daily life. That's between you and God, how you work it out. That's working out your salvation. But you need to know what the truth of, the, of, of God is so you know how to work it out. But, but so you, there should be some mechanism going on in your heart and in your mind and in your home where you are deliberately trying to apply the truth of Scripture into your life into your daily life. So you're not doing this like you used to do this. You're doing this instead. You're, you're going here instead of going there. You're saying these things instead of those things. And you're changing your vocabulary. You're changing the way you think. You're changing the way you act. Now, what do we call all this change? It's called being conformed to the image of his son. We're being molded and shaped and formed. So if you understand the way they purify gold, they dig gold, where do they dig gold from? Out of the ground. And so what's in it? Dirt and wood and other minerals and other things, other metals. Now, gold is a metal, so you can't, you can't destroy it. You can change its shape, but you can't destroy it. So you put gold into a very hot furnace, and it melts and becomes liquefied. And what burns up? The dirt, the wood, the stubble, the other stuff. And so then you take the melt, molted gold and you pour it into a mold, and you pour it into a, a, a block. Gold is soft. It takes other metals to make it hard. Gold doesn't shine. It takes other metals in it to make it shine. Uh, gold is heavy. It's thick. So these, these, these bars of gold, are, they're worth a lot of money, but they're heavy. All right. Now, so that's the, that's the, the, the symbol, that's the sign, that's the, the image that we get of, of sanctification in our lives. We are pure gold. We are the gold that God has dug out of the earth. But we're filled with impurities and we're filled with wood and hay and stubble and all kind of, of sin and all kind of iniquity. And so God puts us in the fire and he burns away the hay and the wood and the stubble. He burns away our lusts. He burns away our sins. He burns away our desires to do things that's not right. And he adds to us ingredients that changes us and makes us shiny and hard and pure. And then he pours us into the mold, and the mold is shaped like Jesus Christ. So we are to act like Jesus, talk like Jesus. We're not, I'm not talking about using 17th century Elizabethan language. I'm talking about that we, that we love our neighbor as ourself, and we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Because if you love God like that, you won't do half of the Ten Commandments. And if you love people like that, you won't do the other half. So loving God and loving people is, is, is extrapolated in the Ten Commandments. That's what the Ten Commandments are, what love looks like. If you love your neighbor, you won't, you won't take his wife and commit adultery with her. You won't dishonor your wife. If you love your neighbor, you won't steal from him. You won't bear false witness against him. If you love God, you won't have any idols and you'll, 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 you'll keep, keep things holy. So uh, God didn't tell that to giraffes. He didn't tell that to chimpanzees. He didn't tell that to monkeys. And the other day I was watching something that had nothing to do with Darwinian evolution, but they got to get it in. And so somehow, I think it was a sports thing, somehow they're going to get evolution in their comments. They're doing their best. They're, they're inconveniencing themselves to disbelieve God in the Bible. It's fascinating. They'll say anything other than I believe the Bible is the word of God. And anybody that does believe in God and believe in the Bible has to tippy-toe around everybody when they say something. So it's almost not any good because by the time they compromise with this and don't say that and don't say this and don't say that and don't pray in Jesus' name and don't do that, what's the point of anything? So they've got everybody hogtied, they think. And then you have people that's moronic like me, and I'll just go ahead and say it. And it gives license for everybody else to say it. Because I don't believe in Darwinian evolution. I think it's the most anti-educational, anti-literate, anti-science thing anybody's ever come up with. It's the most junk-filled, goofy, off-the-wall, silly thing I've ever seen. When I was a little boy, they told me that the frog jumped on the lily pad and, and kissed the princess and became a prince. And that was a fairy story. Well, now it's science. And no, it's not. It's still a fairy story. So there, but God created man uniquely. Now the Jews have believed when Jesus' day, and they believed during the Old Testament days, toward the end of the Old Testament days, right before the dawn of the of the New Covenant, uh, and then they went on into the first century believing very strongly in angels. And so when a Jew heard the phrase, let us make man in our image after our likeness, they taught and they believed that God was talking to the angels. And the problem with that is angels were never, angels are created beings. And so they weren't always with God. And, um, but nothing else, I'm at the bottom of page 34, nothing else in all of the inspired record of creation was created in the image and likeness of God except man. Once again, man is unique in this truth and is therefore said to bear the imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of the face of God. And part of what it actually means when we say that man was made in God's image is found in eight aspects of man that are completely unique to him. Top of page 35, number one, man's personality. Number two, man's spirituality. Now, man's personality, mankind's, people's personality, not just men, not just masculine here, but mankind's personality. One of the things that I have I have always enjoyed and I look forward to when a new when a new baby is born. All the new baby can do is cry. It can't say, "Hey, I'm hungry," or "I'm dirty," or "I need changing," or "I'm tired." He just cries. That's all he knows to do. 
And so the mother and the father have to figure out what, why is he crying? Is he sick? Is he hurt? Is he hungry? Is he tired? Is he wet? Is he dirty? We've got to figure that out. And it's a, it's a process of elimination every single time the baby cries, right? And the baby doesn't mind waking you up at 3 in the morning, right? Right. Now, but then there's a point in time when this child begins to develop a personality. And that is always such a thrill to me when I see this little child that, that didn't do anything but cry begin to be there, be an individual. And you can have five children and every one of them are different. And they're all unique. They've all got unique fingerprints. They've all got unique brain waves. They've all got unique aspects. They've all got unique ways they think and ponder things. Even identical twins have some distinctions. And so there is, there is, a, there is a, a work of God in, in, the, in, this, in, the, in, the, in the human race where each individual stands on their own two feet in a certain sense. In other words, they can't inherit salvation. I can't give my children my salvation. I can't leave it to them in my will. They have to be born again. And so I do everything I can to get into that place, but they're the ones, you lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So I put water troughs all over the place for them to drink, hopefully, hopefully, hoping that they will drink. My daughter told me one time, she said, you just, you just want to shove Jesus down my throat. And I said, if I thought that would work, I'd do that. Because I so fear hell, and I so know you're going to hell, that if you don't repent, I'm terrified for you. And, and most of the time, the people who are lost do not fear hell. The only people who fear hell are the ones who aren't going. It's amazing irony there. But, but each person has a personality. And then when they begin to develop, so my, my granddaughter that lives with us has a very unique personality that's different from her brother. And it's interesting to see this work. And, and then the next one is man's spirituality. Man has the ability to know and to love God. And we're going to get into each one of these. Man's ability to love and enjoy God. Man's self-determination or will. Um, the will to live is one of the strongest um, aspects of humanity that exists on the earth. People have done astounding things in order to stay alive. Um, little, little petite mothers have picked up the back of automobiles in order to save their child who was being run over. A woman who never even held a gun in her hand grabbed a gun on the floor and shot five shots into the center mass of a, of a man who was trying to attack her. She never even picked up a gun before. Shot five shots center mass. When I fire a pistol, some shots go to Pascagoula, other shots go to Mars. It's all over the map. I'm better with a rifle, but you can't use a rifle in close encounters. Um, I remember one of the, you know, they're talking about hazing now. Uh, we really had some rough hazing when I was growing up. To be on the football team, one of the hazings were the first away game where you had to go stay the night in a hotel room. The uh, the seniors would break into your room 
and they take all your clothes off and wrap you up in duct tape and then throw you into a pool. Now, I'm in the pool, and I mean, they threw me off a balcony, and I'm, I'm pushed up off the bottom of the pool, and I'm bobbing up and down trying to breathe, and I'm, I'm fixing to drown. I can't get my arms free, and I can't bounce up and down for hours, so I got to figure out what to do about this mess. And I, I was scared. I was terrified. And I, I mean, I summoned every strength I could, and I busted out of that duct tape. And I don't know how I did that, but when I got through, I was as sore like I had done 10,000 push-ups. But I got out of that duct tape because I wasn't about to die right then. And the coaches were standing up there watching. I guess they would have intervened, but they didn't act like they were intervening. And, and so the will to live is strong. And the second greatest force known to man is the drive of sexuality. The desire that a man has to procreate is powerful. The Bible calls it a fire that burns in the human heart. God made us to procreate men. And so a man thinks about a young man, I'm, I'm saying 16, 17, he thinks about sex about every 13 seconds. And so women don't understand this kind of drive. But it's in us to find a wife and to have children. It's in us. And, and so young men have to be taught how to control that fire. Because it's sin if you do it outside of marriage. And this I've been going through this with people for decades now. Why would God give us such a fire if it wasn't of him? It is of him but he wants you to manage it and control it. We're not pigs. We can control ourselves. We can control what we grab off a plate and stick into our mouth. We have the power to control that. And so the reason that people have problems is because they refuse to exercise that control. And that's one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And so you don't just blow up in anger all the time. You don't just throw, throw in things and kick the dog all the time. You don't do that. Because you're Christian, you have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to not to control yourself and not manifest what you really want to manifest sometimes. And it's a sin to even want to do it, I agree. But then nobody knows you wanted to do it because you didn't do it. And then you repent to you and God. But I'm just telling you that those are two driving forces within all human males that is powerful. And the third most powerful thing that motivates people is man's spirituality. Our, our desire to worship. So we're going to, and, and I, I say this humorously, I hope it's funny. There's um, a, uh, a hard rock uh, artist, I guess that's what they call him. Named Bob Dylan, I don't know why he became a singer. He sings horribly. His voice is awful. But he's supposedly a prophet because he sings about, you know, he's, he's against war and he's against injustice and blah, 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 blah. He's also against God. But one of the songs he wrote is, you're going to serve somebody. And that's absolutely true. And he gives a list of what you're going you're gonna to serve this or that. You're going to serve this or that. You're going to serve this or that. Or you're going to serve somebody. 
And so we are going to worship somebody. We are going to obey something. Somebody is our God. Something is our God. It's either our own, our own bodies. It's our wife. It's our job. It's money. It's sex. It's power. You name it. But we're going to serve somebody. And we're going to serve them with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're going to worship them. So what's the difference in admiring somebody and worshiping them? Where's the line? You got to back off to see how much time you're spending with it. Right. Or spending with it. I, I, would, I would suggest that one of the characteristics, the di- distinctions is time, T-I-M-E. How much time do you spend with this versus how much time do you spend with God? Um, and how much does it cost also? There's a cost a to worship God. A lot of people that has nothing but time. Right, right. So, so there's a line somewhere, and we're, we're crossover between admiring somebody and worshiping them. And we can't do that. But then there's man's commission to subdue and rule over the earth. That's unique to man. God didn't give that to bears or beavers. He gave it to us. Number six is man's immortality. We were originally created to live forever. Sin messed that up. Number seven, man's behavior was always restricted. When God created Adam, he put him in the garden to do what? Manage the garden, till the ground, work, work. One of the things that we we have noticed in the last 150 years or so is the effect that people have in their bodies by sitting in a chair all day long. We weren't made to sit. We were made to stand and walk and work out in the field. Everybody can't do that. I understand that. Some people have to sit at a desk job all day long. But your body wasn't made to do that, which is why you have lower back pain and why this and that and this and that happens. And the, the answer is to get outside and get in the yard and work. And that, that helps. Um, when I was growing up, it was always hotter inside the house than it was outside. Because the house was, you know, had windows, yes, but the outside had a lot more breeze to it. And so to my notion... It was hotter in the house than it was outside the house. So we stayed outside. I mean, you couldn't pay me to stay inside unless I was sick. And we were climbing trees and we were yelling and screaming and running up and down, riding our bikes everywhere. And it was we reluctantly went in. I don't, and I'm trying to think, and I really am trying to remember this. I remember one instance once when I was at my house in the backyard and my mother told me it was time to eat lunch. And, and I took two or three bites and threw the sandwich in the woods and just kept right on playing. but So I don't remember really stopping to even eat lunch sometimes. But I did come in and eat supper. And and then went right back outside and played until my dad whistled. He had a special whistle he could make by putting his fingers a certain way. Sounded like a Bob White. And it was loud. And it, you could hear it all over the neighborhood. And that was my signal. It's time to come home and get a bath. And I hated to take a bath. And I tried to fool him one time. And I ran the bath water in the bathtub and splashed around in it. Came outside, and I was drying my arms off. And he said, go take a bath, Blair. And I said, I already did. He said, with your socks on? Whoops. Whoops. Busted. And then, 
And then God holds man accountable. He doesn't hold beavers accountable. He doesn't hold mosquitoes accountable. He holds us accountable. So we begin going over this. And so I want to, I want to look at, uh, in the middle of page 36, number four, man's self-determination or will. Because I talk a lot about human will, human free will. So uh, in the beginning, before the fall, that's what we're talking about. After God made Adam, but before Adam sinned, right? In the beginning, before the fall, both Adam and Eve were created by God with a will. They were able to consciously make choices that were unhindered and free in the truest sense of that word. How so? How were they able to make those choices? In other words, we have to, we have to understand there's two things. They, they, they were able to sin, but they were able not to sin, either one. They could choose between the two. Now, I don't have that choice before I'm saved. As a lost person, after Adam sinned, everybody born after that was lost until they get born again. So as a lost person, I, I am not able to sin or not to sin. Everything I do as a lost person is sin. Everything I do. Because even when I do a nice or good or noble thing, I'm doing it for my own glory. I'm not doing it for God's glory because I don't believe in God and I don't love God. So how is it that Adam and Eve were able to, to make choices in the truest sense of that word? And I can't. As a lost person, I can't. As a saved person, I, I'm reverted back to the way they were before the fall, and I can sin or I cannot sin. But, but how were they able to sin or not to sin before the fall? Very simple but very profound reason. They didn't have a fallen nature. But they was in a place called the Garden of Eden with someone that was in heaven, but yet in the same place they was at. But right. The God. serpent was a beast, a creature, I mean, that was uh, knowed what heaven was about. Talking about Lucifer, Satan. Yeah. The serpent. Okay. Right. The serpent. But Adam and Eve didn't have a fallen nature. They didn't have any internal lust. They had no sin nature. They weren't guilty of Adam's sin because Adam hadn't sinned yet. And, and the serpent knew that. Right. Now, so that's why they were able to sin or not to sin. Now, as a lost person, I'm born in 1954. I grew up all those day, years I was growing up until I was saved, until I was born again, I was only able to sin. Then when I became God's child and I was born again and became adopted and, and justified, I, will, I, will, I am now able to sin and able not to sin. I can do either one. When I go to heaven... I won't be able to sin at all. That's why my flesh, as it exists now, can't go to heaven. My flesh has to be redeemed just like my soul is redeemed. And my flesh is going to be redeemed instantly in a miracle called the resurrection. And I will have a glorified body. But as it is, this, this tent that I'm living in now is corrupt. It, it, it knows how to sin. It hasn't forgotten how to sin. It loves sin. It wants to sin. But my spirit is taking charge over my flesh most of the time. 
And I say most of the time because I still sin. And I'm sad about that, and that hurts me, but that's the truth. Before the fall, man possessed no internal lust that he had to respond that, that had to respond to temptation with lawless acts. So when Satan comes to tempt me, he presents me with an opportunity to do what I want to do anyway. That's why it's attractive to me. If Satan came to me and said, make these stones turn into bread, it wouldn't be a temptation because I can't do that. Um, but when he comes to me and tells me, you don't need to be always subservient to God. You need to be independent of God and do your own thing. I've learned through the years that that's a lie. And it's a terrible sin. And so I resist that impulse. But there are certain things that all men are tempted with. There are certain things that young men are tempted with. There are certain things that older men are tempted with. There are certain things that married men are tempted with that are almost universal. And then there are individual things that I personally am tempted with that you may not be tempted, other men may not be tempted with. Same thing is true with ladies. There's things that all ladies that are single are tempted with, all ladies that are married are tempted with, all young ladies are tempted with, or all old ladies are tempted with. And then there are individual things that individual people are tempted with. And Satan's had 6,000 years of experience with us. He's been on this earth now for 6,000 years. So he understands us. And he knows there's a whole collection of sins that are going to bother me but for no other reason than I'm a man. And then there are other sins that bother Blair personally. And, and he knows that. I've got to learn what they are. And that's why God allows me to be tempted so that I can learn from my mistakes what to do and what not to do. Um, now, Satan does that, but Satan is not omniscient. God is omniscient. So Satan does not know everything about everything. God does. I don't. God does. Therefore, Satan gets frustrated. Satan gives up and goes somewhere else. When it's too hard, it's like a burglar. A burglar doesn't want to be caught. And so if you make your home hard to get into, the chances of him getting caught are far greater than a house that is not hard to get into. So why risk getting caught? You just go where there's an easy entrance. Um, same thing's true with Satan. He, he, there's times when he wants me to do something. I'm not going to do it. I'm not. And the fact that I know I'm being tempted to do it makes me all the more determined not to do it. And so he'll give up and go jump on somebody else for a while and leave me alone. Satan is not omnipresent either. He can only be in one place at one time. So if he's tap dancing on my head, he's not bothering Brother Don. And if he's over there at Jody's house, he's not with Sister Colleen. And, and that's, that's the way he works. But he's got fallen angels. A third of the angels fell with him. Now, I don't know a third of what. The Bible doesn't tell us, right? At one place it says myriads and myriads, which is a whole bunch. But how much is a third of a myriad? We don't know. 
So is it 10,000? Is it 100,000? Is it 3 million? Is it 250 million? Is it 6 billion angels? We don't know. Is it 19? We don't know. But a third of the angels fell with Lucifer when he fell, and Jesus cast them, God cast them into the earth. Jesus said, I saw Satan as lightning fall to the earth. He can't ever go back into heaven. There's no more place found in heaven for him. So he's angry because he knows he has but a short time, and he cannot repent. God lets him know that he's going to be damned throughout all of eternity, but he can't repent. We can repent. We've been given that gift. Satan doesn't have the gift. So he knows he's in trouble, and he knows he's going to pay for it, but he doesn't do nothing to do about it. And it torments him. So Satan is not sitting on a throne with flames all around him, ordering his troops to go do thus and so. That's not the correct picture of Satan. Satan is a victim in hell, just like everybody else that's in there. And he knows the Bible, and he believes the Bible's true. And so he'll use that against us. So he's the false accuser of the brethren. He accuses us day and night, and he constantly tap dances on our heads and tries to make us give up and be frustrated. You know you're not saved. You know good and well you're not. If you were saved, you wouldn't have acted like that. Why'd you act like that? Because you're not saved. You know good and well God doesn't love you. God's abandoned you. You're not with God. God's not with you. Just give up. It's constant. It's constant. And we either listen to it or we don't. That's your two choices. But that's because we have a will. Now, since the fall of Adam, that will is not free. That will is in bondage to what we love. We choose what we love. We choose what we want. We choose what we desire or lust after. But why do we choose what we choose? Why do we love what we love? Well, that's based on our nature, who we are. And so the nature of the, of the, of the individual has to be radically changed so that the loves are radically changed, so that the choices can be radically changed. That's what happens in the new birth. So God changes our nature, and we automatically now love God, and we love the things of the Spirit of God. And so we make choices pertaining to that. But our flesh still loves sin and self, and so we're in a battle, a constant battle. And the language in the Bible about sin, the language in the Bible about temptation, the language in the Bible about our flesh being attracted to sin is the language of war. It is not the language of appeasement. It is not the language of gentleness or kindness or sweetness. It's the language of war. We have to kill. We have to starve to death the lusts of our flesh. We have to crucify them as another term. We have to put them to death or they will eat us alive. All right. Um, Sister Colleen, if you would read Genesis 3, verse 6, middle of page 36, down in the bottom third. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Okay, now... Five minutes ago, she told Satan, we can't even touch it or we'll die. But because of deception, she saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's what deception does. 
it makes sin look attractive. I, I, I used to rail out quite a bit about television. Television could have been such a wonderful tool. Um, it could have given people, and we, Ron and I still do this all the time, we, we look at biographies of, of people that lived in the past or we look at stories about, about nature or we look at uh, uh, documentaries about war or about different things like that so that we can learn, that we can be educated. Uh, very little of television do we watch that's just entertainment. Because and that's the majority of why television is watched today. And then now, now that we're a little more sophisticated, you got to include the internet in that as well. The internet could be a boon to everybody because it's a wealth of information at your fingertips. I remember literally having to go to the library, physically getting in the car, driving to the library in order to finish some of my sermons, because I had to do research and I didn't have the money to buy all the books, and the books were at the library. Uh, now you, you click a button and you get on the internet and you can find somebody's research that took them 50 years to figure out. And, and it's, it's astounding. So this is the information age. And yet it's the majority of what the internet is used for is entertainment. Or, and it isn't that watching YouTube silly videos is so evil. It's such a waste of time. That's what makes it wrong. So it's captivating though. But it's helped to make sin look attractive. So especially if you look up to somebody and then you're one of your heroes starts saying things that have a theological impact. Um, there's a, um, a documentary or something um, and that one of the one of the secretaries of the treasury was talking to the president, and I think it was Mellon. This was a documentary about about uh, our country in the in the past. And the uh, secretary of treasury told the president, "You know the Bible doesn't condemn slavery, and you know the Bible can't be taken literally, and you know the Bible." is really not reliable. And he went on and on and on and on. And I'm looking at this and I, you know, he's trying to deceive me. That's not true. And he's got panache because he's a secretary of the treasury. Well, he didn't have that credibility with me. He's wrong. He's, he's, he's a fool. He's deceived. The Bible did condemn slavery in its action, in its practice. There's no one verse that says, thou shalt not have slaves. That's what everybody's looking for. But there's no one verse that says God is three persons. Or that we're supposed to preach behind a pulpit. There's no verse that says that. But unlike any other animal, so, so number five, man's commission to subdue and rule over the earth. We're, we're getting into that. Unlike any other animal that God made, man was given the authority and the power of, by God to subdue the earth and to rule over it. Brother Byrne, look at Genesis 1, 26 through 31.
and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So God created the world in such a way that for the earth to be productive and useful and for it to be able to fulfill God's will, man must subdue it and rule over it. Left to itself, the earth is deadly, unproductive, and inefficient. In order for the planet to be useful to God's glory and man's benefit, it must be subdued and governed by man. There are, there are countries, other countries, that we are uh, sending our agricultural experts over to teach them how to farm. They've been farming for, de- for centuries. And the, the, the rains came and every year and it washes their crops all down into the sea. So we have to teach them how to build terraces that holds the water so that it doesn't wash their crops away. And we're doing that all over the world today. And been doing it for all my life, as far as I can tell. And, and, and so left to itself, the earth is unproductive. And it's, and it's inefficient. We're the ones that make it work. Yet, man's authority to subdue and to rule over the earth was always as a steward over that which belongs solely to God. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. And never as an owner. Man was also told to rule over the earth in accord with God's written instructions, which is the Bible, the scriptures. So even before the fall, man was never in complete authority over anything. Man originally operated as a happy slave, talked and talked with helping the earth, tasked with helping the earth to function in accord with the will and the decree of God. Now this is offensive. You were always meant to be a slave. Before your sin, before your salvation, you were a slave to your lusts, a slave to sin. Now that you're saved, you're a bond slave of Jesus Christ. You've never been the boss. You've never been in charge. And I was wrong when I used to preach this, that when you were lost, you were out there doing your own thing. No, you weren't. You were being driven by your lusts. And your lust didn't love God. Your lust didn't include worshiping God. The word lust is the same root word as love. It's the same root word as desire. It's the same root word as want. So wanting something, loving something, desiring something, and lusting after it is all the same root word. It's different expressions of of affections of the heart. And so we have, and the goal of salvation is not to eliminate your affections. The goal of salvation is to release the good affections while tamping down the bad ones. We're supposed to love God, not just obey Him. We're supposed to enjoy God, not just fear Him. 
We are to obey God. We are to fear God, but we're also to love him and, and enjoy him. And so there is this happiness in serving God that, that we need to continually keep before us. Number six is man's immortality. Man was unlike God in that he had a precise beginning. He was created in a moment, but he was like God in that man was given an immortal soul that would not and could not die. Originally, this immortality included his physical body as well. Number seven, man's behavior was always restricted. There has never been a time when man was completely free or autonomous. Man has always been theonomous, which is God-ruled. So at no time before or after the fall has man been the master of my fate or the captain of my, of my soul. Such absolute freedom is a myth. Even before the fall, God limited man. And God assigned him with specific duties and always restricted his behavior. Number eight, God always holds man accountable. Unlike, again, unlike anything else that God made, man is held responsible or accountable by God for what God requires from him. Man is always and is in all ways fully responsible for his actions, his thoughts, his intentions, and his deeds. And because this is true, God rewards man for his willful and joyful obedience and punishes man for his rebellious disobedience. In one verse, 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, Sister Colleen. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. All right. So everything that's not of God in your Christian life that you were a part of, that you love, that you were pleased with, that you tried to do, some of that was not of God. And the parts that were of God is going to be to your reward in heaven, and the parts that were not of God are going to be burned up. So everything I've ever taught, everything I've ever preached that's not of God is going to be burned up. I myself will be saved even as by fire, but some of my works will be burned up because they weren't of God. I just I just did it on my own. Now, that terrifies me. And that motivates me. I don't want my works to be burned up. I want God to be pleased with what I do. The man that is of God comes to God so that his, his deeds may be approved by God. That's why we run to God. Is this what you're talking about? Am I pleasing you? I don't want to displease the Lord. But I'm sure that I do. Brother Vern? You need to talk in the mic part about it to me is that my intentions don't matter right it, in other words what is god's word yeah uh, i mean what is is what matters not your intention right right you know even though i intend to do something right and do it for good if it's not god's will if it's going against his word in other words if i don't know what he said about that subject or that idea uh, all my good intentions are going to be burned up and uh it could be a good intention but it's not at the right time because there's a season and a time for it to happen that's what i'm thinking all right so so i'm studying god's word and i'm studying to record to put something on the radio and I want it to be of God. I don't want it to be not of God. Now, let me, let me end with this. This is a warning about man and deity. 
even though it is true that man is unique from everything else in creation, and even though it is also true that man made God, that God made man, excuse me, to have a relationship with himself, no one should draw the conclusion that because of this, man is like God in that he is in any way deity before the fall, after the fall, after salvation, or even in heaven. The Bible is crystal clear about this subject. Man was never deity. Man will never be deity. Man is not deified through salvation in Jesus Christ, and neither will man become deified in heaven. So the Mormons are wrong. Kenneth Copeland's wrong. Kenneth Hagin's wrong. Joyce Meyer's wrong. All those people, Jerry Savelle, all those people that teach that man is a God, it is wrong. The indwelling of God the Holy Spirit within man also does not confer upon man any form of deity or divinity. All teaching from any source, either historic or modern, that assigns deity or divinity to man in any way is evil, blasphemous, false, unbiblical, and contrary to everything the Bible teaches about both God and man. And the people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that we are your children, that we are your slaves, and we thank you for that. We thank you for changing our minds. We thank you for inserting yourself into our lives and changing all of our plans and, and this wonderful plan that you have for us is so much better than what we had planned. And we're so grateful for it. And we ask God that, you, that, that we could enjoy you, that we could love you more, that we could cease from sin, and that we could glorify you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.